inspired. Now, let me say this. The word inspired, when we look at Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. It means it's literally God-breathed. It's orchestrated by God. So when we pick this book up, the 66 canonized books of the Scripture, it's about God. God is the subject. He is the object. It's about Him. And He invites us into a narrative of understanding who He is and having a relationship with Him. Now, we've established from Genesis chapter 3, the Bible starts with a divorce, and the Bible is the story of a betrayed lover, that being God, continuing to pursue us and woo us back into his arms so that we can enjoy family with him forever. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. God has continued to pursue us. God loves us. That which he made in his image He would eventually redeem with his blood. God is on the pursuit, and he's wanting every person on this planet to respond to his pursuit and come back into fellowship with him. Now, as a result of sin, it disrupted humanity at all levels. You go back to Genesis 3, sin jacked it all up. And as a result of that, we all were born into the world with the Adamic nature, Adam's nature, And as a result of that, we're in a fallen world and we're fallen people. We're jacked up people living with other jacked up people in a jacked up world trying to figure it out every day. Life is a struggle. Every person under my voice has gone through pain, heartache, sorrow. Life's been hard for us. Life's not always easy. It's very difficult. You'll hear me say that the universal language is suffering. Write it down. The universal language is suffering. Every person you meet, no matter what their nationality, no matter where they're from, no matter what their age is, suffering is the universal language. It's interesting as we walk through certain days and certain weeks that even this week, you go through the ebbs and flows, you go through highs, and you go through lows, you laugh one moment and you cry the next. You celebrate the the miracle of life one moment, and then you're contemplating the brevity of man with death in the next. We we stand here on Tuesday, and we have a celebration service for our buddy Bruce. Shelly and the kids are here, much of the family, and our heart hurts. It hurts. You see families hurt. You see them struggle, and you see disease, and you see death, and you see difficulty and then, and then the way life is, Rick and Kara, Rick, our student ministries pastor, two days later you get a text and we've been praying for Rick and we've been praying for Kara. And Nora, their baby little girl, was born on Thursday and all of us are introduced to the struggle of life, to the great excitement that we have one day and then the devastating pain that we'll experience the next. How do we navigate through it? Where's God in the midst of all of our struggle and pain and nonsense? Just don't make sense at times. Barb said that the other night. This one makes no sense with Bruce. And I said, it makes no sense. Gay was our midwife. And just so happened that Jamie used gay as well years ago. And gay got sick. And I was like, it makes no sense. Gay passed away. And I'm like, that, that one makes no sense. If you, you ever been there scratching your head saying it just don't make any sense? Life is a struggle. Life is hard. Robbie Zacharias, one of my favorite writers and speakers, 
He was sharing years ago, and he made this observation. He said, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might be amazed, watch God's methods and watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him, which only God understands. And while his tortured heart is crying, he lifts his feeble hands. He bends, but he never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses who he chooses and by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what God is all about. God knows what God is all about. And so again, I speak today to people that have been broken, people that have been wounded, people that have been hurt, people that have been rejected, betrayed. All of us come here today realizing life is hard, Dan, it's a struggle. And sometimes we don't get all the answers on this side. One of the things that we preach and teach and share here that matters to us, and you'll see it on the back of the Cross Loganville shirts, is that your story matters. We believe every story that walks in here matters. And we believe that when we pick up the Bible and we start to study these 66 books, we believe that every story in Scripture matters. Today we're going to look at three stories. We're going to look at the story and narrative of a guy by the name of Nehemiah. We're going to look at the story and narrative of Esther. And then we're going to look at the story of Job. And there's three words I would kind of cause you to to, to ponder today as we work through these. God uses, God chooses, God bruises. A lot of us like the God using part. A lot of us like the God choosing part. But most of us struggle with the God bruising part. And so we're going to unpackage, if you will, some of these stories. Nehemiah. Nehemiah, God uses, God raised up this man, Nehemiah, to lead his people, to lead Israel. We'll get to it in a bit, but Nehemiah was known for rallying people together and rebuilding the wall. Not that the wall has gotten much attention in our society. We're going to rebuild a wall, but here would be my question as I ponder Nehemiah with you and introduce him to you. What motivates you most deeply today? If you had to get gut level honest and start to really cut yourself open and say, what, what motivates me most deeply? Is it advancing your plan for your life? Or is it advancing God's plan for God's world? We live in this self-centered, self-consumed society where so many people we encounter it, it appears that they're committed only to advancing their name and advancing their cause and being applauded. What are you most committed to? Nehemiah was prepared and Nehemiah was committed to no matter what the cost, to honor and glorify God and persuade other people to do the same. 
I was reading through Nehemiah, and I'm like, what a beautiful work right here. What a beautiful narrative. Ne- Nehemiah, what was the, the fundamental purpose of your journey? Oh, Nehemiah would say, I'm here to glorify and honor God, but I'm here to persuade others to do the same. started thinking about this. Mama Kay, how cool would it be if that was our mission statement for life? Well, well, what do you know about her? Well, what do you know about Sonny? What do you know about Jim? What, what do you know about Steve? What do you know about Benji? What do you know about? Well, I, I can tell you what I know about them. Their fundamental purpose for being on the planet, no matter what the cost, they're here to honor and glorify God and persuade other people to do the same. I'm like, that's what I want my mission to be about. We defined weeks ago that a disciple is a person who is committed to being all they can be and the best they can be for the glory of God, plus encouraging others to be all they can be and the best they can be for the glory of God. Nehemiah seems to be a true disciple of Yeshua when you start to read through who he was. One of the things I wrote was, whatever you do out of a sincere desire to honor God and glorify God and persuade others is a noble, good thing that you're doing. And you will be energized by the Holy Spirit and by the King when you start to do such work. Nehemiah, as you study him, he was just Jeff, an ordinary man that became an extraordinary leader. And the scripture is replete when you start to study his life. What what, what do we know about Nehemiah? We know that he was a man of prayer. We know that he pressed into God. And I can tell you this today, you will not be an extraordinary leader anointed by God if you're not pressing into prayer. And all things, give thanks and pray without ceasing, we're told. Be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. Jesus, early in the morning, would depart to a lonely place, and there he would pray. And I believe one of the greatest marks in the life of a leader of God is our prayer life. It's when we're pressing into the Lord. It's when we're seeking the wisdom from God. It's when we eliminate the human counsel for a period of time and say, I got to get with my king. I got to press in. So when you study Nehemiah's life, you go, he was a man of prayer, but he was also a man of faith. Nehemiah was willing to take chances. He stepped out into that which was uncomfortable to risk it all. When you study the life of Nehemiah, you realize that he faced much opposition But he was on a mission because God had anointed him and appointed him, and he's like, we've got to do something. One of the other benchmarks of Nehemiah, as you'll see, he had incredible ability to organize and manage people. And I think those are the benchmarks of a great leader, of a strong leader. What what, what is this guy good at? Well, he knows how to to pray and press into God. He knows how to hear from God. He's not afraid to step out in faith to the unknown. But he's also really good when it comes to assimilating, organizing, and motivating people. Nehemiah did a great job to create community. You'll hear us talk about the importance of community here. But when you study the book of Nehemiah, the community rallied together. You'll hear us say that true life, if you're ever going to live it to the full, is not done in a row. It's done in a circle. You don't do life looking at the back of somebody else's head. You do it in a small group, heart to heart when you're able to walk with each other. And even again this week, we've seen the power of those small groups, Shelly, coming together. And it's like, we're going to take care of each other. Nehemiah 
He mobilized the Jews to rebuild the wall, and it took them 52 days to do it. 52 days to rebuild it. And many had looked saying, this is impossible. And Nehemiah goes, no, it's possible. With God, all, 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 things, all things are possible if we work together. And he rallied them together. And when you study chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you'll see words like, and so-and-so was next to him, and beside him was so-and-so, and next to him, and beside him, and next to him, and beside him. And it screams community and connectivity. Oh, Tim was out there working, and Benji and Jesse and Caleb were beside him. And then Neil was over there, and he had Josh and Ethan beside him. And Je Jeff was over there with his boys, and you, you should have seen them working as Caleb and Jonah. His boys were after it. It, it was this whole thing of where the dads got together and got serious about fulfilling God's mission, saying we got to rebuild this wall. We got to rebuild it. And I don't really know and not being rude, don't really care where you're at and your thoughts about this whole thing with a wall, but walls are important. When you study scripture, they're important. Nehemiah was committed to rebuilding the wall. David talked about the importance of having a strong wall fortifying the city. Scripture is flooded with statements about having strong gates, and Micah would even write about the importance of having walls. We, we, why do you build walls? We, we build walls for a reason. Wayne Grudem, who is one of my favorite uh, scholars, if you will, he was the general editor for the ESV Study Bible, English Standard Version Study Bible. He wrote another great book on systematic theology, one of my favorites in my library. He's been a prof for years. He made this statement. He said, the Bible views border walls as a morally good thing. Walls on a border are a major deterrent to evil, and they provide clear, visible evidence that a city or nation has control over who enters it. Something that's absolutely essential if a government is going to prevent a nation from devolving more and more into anarchy. Now, now, now I, again, it doesn't matter where you're at on that. I mean, there's multiple layers of the argument when we start to look at it. But what we do know, what, what we do know is they do provide protection. I think every person in this room under my voice that lives in a house has a door on your house, and on the door you've got a knob, and on the knob you've got a lock, and you lock your door. And I think every person in this room would say, yeah, yeah, I, I've got a car, and I've got a lock on my doors. I, I want to know who's coming and going in and out of my stuff. And Nehemiah was like looking at J Jerusalem, and he's looking at our God's people, and he's like, you know, you know what we've done? We've done a terrible job of protecting ourselves. The Babylonians and the enemy is coming against us, and we've just sat here and done nothing. It's time to do something. We've got to strengthen who we are. And so you start to look at Nehemiah, and there's a lot of interesting things. God chooses to use people like you and I in strategic positions every day. Nehemiah had no clue what God was doing in his life. But Nehemiah says, I'm willing to step up and, and take a lead role. And as I studied this guy's life, I was like, Nehemiah is a book on leadership. It's a book on character. It's a book on integrity. It's a book on pressing into God and praying and taking risk. It's a narrative of being a witness wherever God has you today. You've got to ask the question, where does God have me? Where does God place me? And what am I doing to advance the kingdom there is a great need today in Loganville, in Walton, Gwinnett County, in the state of Georgia. There is a great need today 
for faithful believers to step up to the plate. People that are pressing into Jesus, people that know God's word, people that are committed to prayer, and people that are risk takers, willing to risk it for the sake of the kingdom. There is a great need today. Wherever God has you, whatever your job, workplace might look like, I can tell you there, there's a great need today for people to become an outspoken voice for the gospel. I, I, I want to use you. Studying through Nehemiah, and I was like, yeah, that, that, that's needed. Nehemiah reminds us that if you're doing God's work, you can expect opposition. Some people ain't going to like it. Nehemiah reminds us that setbacks do not indicate that God's not in control. Nehemiah reminds us that success and failure belongs to the Lord. And Nehemiah reminds us that caring for people is more important than anything we accomplish. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have people attack you. That's, that's right. You ever have people attack you? Yes. You ever have people dog you? Yeah, yes. I'll never forget that conversation when Benji and I were getting ready to go to Arizona eight years ago. And this gentleman looked at Benji. And he said, if your dad goes into full-time Christian work in a local church, if your dad starts pastoring in a local church, you realize as one of his kids, you're going to have a target on your back. You get to the airport. Benji and I are sitting there. And Benji basically says, here's the reality. I don't care what you do, and it doesn't matter what you do. But, Dad, if I choose to follow Jesus, i got a target on my back anyway. And I think a lot of us, we back off. We, we, we back off of becoming a disciple of Jesus, pulling the throttle back, because we, we, we don't want opposition we want people to like us, to need us, to applaud us. And Nehemiah says, save it. You've got to be willing to risk it. If God is going to do a work in you and through you, you never know. You never know what God's capable of doing. It's like, I've got to risk it, Tom. I'm not sitting on the bench. I'm in the game, and I'm playing it hard. Nehemiah wanted to introduce you to my buddy Nehemiah because his story matters. And then let me introduce you to this chick by the name of Esther. Esther's one of only two books in the Bible named for a female. Ruth is the other one. But Esther, God chooses her. God chooses an unknown, unlikely girl. And she eventually finds herself in the king's palace as queen. And she's chosen by God and used by God. It's such a pivotal time in human history that she ultimately becomes God's voice piece and almost savior for the Jews. God works in mighty ways. God is faithful. God can be trusted. God is sovereign. And when you start to look at Esther's life, you go, well, how did she get to where she was at? Well, she didn't grow up in Persia. And when you start to look at Esther's life, Esther's mom died and Esther's dad died and pretty much all of her family had died. So everything that Esther knew was pretty much taken away from her. She was orphaned and she now finds herself with, with, with no family and she's hurting and she's confused. And she had this older cousin by the name of Mordecai and Mordecai sees Esther and finds her and he says, I, I, I'm going to take care of you. 
I'm going to take you back to live with me. Mordecai worked there at the king's palace. He was a gatekeeper, if you will. But he's like, I'm going to take care of you. But everything she knew, everything she was familiar with, even everything she had come out of was gone. And a lot of times we look at people's narratives and stories, and we kind of pick them up at a glamorous moment, but we don't, we don't stop to go, tell me your story. So that happened to you, really, and this has happened to you. Yeah. Mordecai gets word that King Xerxes is going to have a beauty pageant, and he knows Esther is very attractive. He's like, you ought to enter the beauty pageant, Esther. I mean, come on, I'm your cousin, but you are some more kind of good looking. And Esther enters the beauty pageant. And Esther wins the beauty pageant. All of a sudden, she's brought in to the palace. She is there with the king. She goes through a year of just incredible beauty treatments and spa treatments. That's what the scripture says. And Xerxes was like, wow, this chick's bringing it. But she was Jewish, and she was the only Jewish girl there, if you will. Here's the point. I want you to hear this. Two things. God has the power at any given time to turn a trial into a blessing. God has the power at any given time to turn your trial into triumph. You never know what God's doing at any given moment. None of us have the ability to see the whole story. We get caught up into the chapter, and sometimes the chapters that we're living hurt. They're devastating. Esther didn't know what was going on. She's brought in. She's queen. All of a sudden, uh, Mordecai gets word that they're trying to kill Xerxes. He gets the word to Xerxes, and he's like, man, thanks for protecting me. They were trying to take me out. Now this dude by the name of Haman, he's wicked. He's evil. He's wanting to kill all the Jews. He's wanting to kill Mordecai. He's wanting to kill the entire Jewish population off. Sounds like a modern-day Hitler of his time. And Mordecai goes, something's, something's jacked up here. They're trying to kill us all. He sends word to Esther. Hey, 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 Esther, let me tell you what's happening. Pick it up in Esther 4, 14. One of my favorite verses in Esther. He said, Haman's trying to kill us. This ain't good. And then he says, uh, Esther, if you keep quiet at a time like this, you and your relatives will die. Who knows? Perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. If you keep quiet, we could die. Perhaps the reason, perhaps the reason that God has you where he has you. I know it was tough. Your mom and dad died. It was hell. It was a lot of pain. But God in his supernatural plan has placed you in a pivotal position. Suppose God has you where he has you for such a time as this. Suppose God has you. Suppose God has you as a coach for such a time as this. Suppose God has you as a teacher for such a time as this. Suppose God has you as a plumber. Suppose God has you putting in glass. Suppose God has you with Coke. 
Suppose God has you driving a truck for such a time as this. Where does he have me? But I do know that obeying God is crucial. And that one step of obedience saying, here am I, use me, can impact and change an entire generation of people. God may be wanting you, use, he just wants to use you, that could change the narrative of history. Esther didn't see this coming. Esther didn't feel qualified. God was choosing to use an unlikely person. But she had a choice. I'm queen now. I've got this plush lifestyle going on. I got all the hook-me-ups. I've got great food. I've got great living arrangements. If if I go to the king and tell him, uh, hold on, I could lose my slut. I could lose my favor. She never even blinked an eye. She had a choice. Are you going to give up your safety? I didn't even want the safety in the first place. I'm a Jewish girl. God had somehow rescued me, put me over here. Listen to what Mordecai and Esther basically conclude. They basically conclude that God had given her purpose in her position. And I think that's one of the things we have to conclude in our journey. God, you've given me purpose in my position. So she fasted and prayed, sent a note back to Mordecai and said, would y'all please fast and pray for the next three days I'm going to have my girls do the same? And she said, and when this is done, after we've fasted, after we've prayed, after we've sought God, I'm going to go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I die, I die. I'm willing to risk it. I know God has rescued me. I know that he has me here for such a time as this. Where does God have you? You've got to stop and ask the question, where has he placed me? There is purpose in your position. It doesn't matter what your job description is. Maybe you walk into a place and you think you're the low man in the chain of command. God may have you right where he's got you today to be his voice piece. There is not a position without a mission and without a purpose. Every position has purpose. Every position has mission. God is faithful. And God will oftentimes work in ways that we don't see. We don't see the whole picture. And a lot of us, we've been, like I said, We've been knocked down, man. It's tough. But here would be my question. Where does God have you? What is God calling you to do? Are you willing to be a voice piece for the kingdom? Are you sharing the love of Christ? Are you reaching out to others? Don't waste your moment. Esther is a strong story. So I've been very privileged to introduce you to my friend Nehemiah and talk to you a little bit about my friend Esther. I'm going to spend eternity with both of them. Because their story matters. So God uses, God chooses, God bruises. Job is a tough book. 
Job is not one of those books you pick up just for light recreational reading. Job is a challenging read. There was a man named Job from us. Good dude. He feared God. Stayed away from evil. Satan's like, yeah, he only fears you because you're good to him. And then the narrative unfolds. Read Job. Larry Crabb said this regarding Job. He said, suffering without explanation creates an opportunity for faith in God to increase. Suffering without explanation. Why am I going through this, God? Well, if we knew, what would we do with it? Suffering without explanation is an invitation for us to increase our faith and dependence in God. It hurts. It doesn't seem fair. It seems unjust. I'm hurting. God goes, but I love you. Sin disrupted humanity at every level. Death, disease, difficulty. There's all kinds of dynamics of pain. Stay with me. You were rejected. You were divorced. You were raped. You were, you were, and the beat goes on. But I promise you I'm good. I promise you I am. I didn't want to see you go through this. Those first two people I put in the garden, I promise you, they were naked and not ashamed. They were walking in holiness and purity with me. But, but I promise you the ramifications and consequences of sin spread. They spread. Because suffering without explanation creates this invitation to say, are you willing to trust me and press into me? Now, now Scripture says without faith it's impossible to please God. Those who come to God must believe he exists. He rewards those who diligently seek him. You, you can't know me and you can't walk with me and you can't hang with me unless you go through suffering. God drives us to places of faith at times, even in the midst of our crying and our tears and our pain and our questions. And he's like, you're going to learn to worship me. You're going to learn to worship me no matter what. Job shares some of the greatest observations of faith recorded in, Bible, in the Bible. Job makes this statement, naked I came from my mom's womb, naked I will depart. What are you saying, Job? I'm saying I came into the world with no worldly possessions. I'm going to exit the world the same way. He goes on to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May the name of the Lord be praised, period. Job, you really think that way? The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. And I struggle like you do. I struggle like you do. I want a God that gives, but I don't want a God that takes away. I want a God that says, I'm going to give you breath, much like Nora on Thursday. I'm going to give you breath. 
She didn't stand in line for it. She didn't do anything to, to deserve breath. I, December 11th, 1962, I, I didn't deserve breath. I mean, I promise you, God in the world was fine without me being born. I like that God that gives. But I don't like that God that takes away. And I struggle just like you do with the God that would say, give me back my breath. You, you struggle with that. I struggle reading. You've got an appointed number of days. So do I. That's what Job said. The Lord gave. The Lord's taken away. My wife, my kids, my farm. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm like, I, I, I want to live there. Then Job goes on to say, should we accept good from God and not trouble? Should you praise God only when things are good? And you know, after doing sports ministry for all those years, it's one of the fundamental things that bothers me. Bam! Home run! And guys run the bases. Yes. Boom! Strike three. Bam! And every adjective you can imagine. Oh, so your God's only good when the outcome favors you. But your God sucks when you don't look good. And it troubles my heart because I've had to struggle through this with this God. Oh, you like the God that only favors you with good stuff. Yes, I do. And I've struggled this week as much as anybody. I hurt and I cry as much as anybody. And I'm like, God, how can I land with the perspective of Job? You give, you take away. Blessed be your name. Man born of woman, his days are few, and they feature so much trouble. If a man dies, will he live again? All in Job. Then, then Job's friends, Casey, show up. His buddies show up. And, and his buddies look at him, and they chill with him for a week, seven days. And then all of a sudden, things were good until they opened their mouth. Job, you realize the reason life sucks for you right now is there's got to be sin. Something's wrong with you. And they basically reduce God down to a cosmic sheriff. Job, you know if you go to the speed limit and do what's right, you can cruise with no problem. But when you start breaking the speed limit, that's when God is going to come down on you. And, and his buddies had such a distorted view of God. And there's been so many people that I've dealt with over the years that grew up in certain teachings that taught them you're going through pain, it's because there's sin in your life. It's because you don't have enough faith. Really? Sometimes it might be the truth, but drop it. Don't use that blanket statement. So you're going to tell me Job wore it? Why? Because there's a cosmic chess match? I've struggled through it, Steve. And his friends go, yep, something's wrong with you. 
maybe something's wrong with y'all. Maybe y'all got such a distorted view of God. Maybe you bought into an entitlement gospel. Maybe you believe I deserve. Maybe you believe God owes me a hook me up. And I'm telling you, Aquarius, we all struggle battling through and wrestling through going, where do I land? God, you are good. And I will praise you in this storm. And if you're good, do I have the ability to accept whatever comes my way? Does it really rain on the just and the unjust? And I'm telling you, the health, wealth, and name it, claim it gospel gets blown up when you do a critical survey of the life of Job. It's not the gospel according to Jesus. Yep. I, uh, I don't deserve this. I've lived well. I'm telling you, I went to church. I don't tie that tip maybe once a month. I read the daily bread twice a week. I did pray one time before we ate. This sucks and I deserve better. That is the Western mindset of the Bible belt of the South. As soon as adversity hits, we go, where's God? No, 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 no. The question is, where are you? And what God do you serve? He's not a cosmic sheriff and he's not a cosmic Santa. We don't sit on his lap and he just gives us whatever we want. He allows us to go through bruising. When God wants to drill a man and skill a man, when God wants the man to play the noblest part, watch his methods, watch his ways. Larry Crabb said, when you stand before God in mystery, you can eventually rest in him with trust. When you can't figure God out, you will give up the illusion of predictability and control, and you will then start to discover the joy and freedom of hope in the gospel. And I'm reading that going, man, that's, that, that's what God has been introducing me to since October of 85. I'm not predictable. You can't control me. I have prayed for people and they be healed. I have prayed for people and they passed away. I've prayed for people, and it's not in my hands. When people say, well, if you can get more people and get more oil and dump more oil and anoint them, I'm telling you I know a God who raises the dead. I do too, but sometimes he don't. And well, I praise him in the midst of the suffering. Well, I praise him no matter what. Soren Kierkegaard said, God punishes the ungodly by ignoring them. This is why they have success in the world. But God sends suffering to those he loves as an assistance to enable them to become even more holy by loving him. God seems to punish people who reject him by letting them have their way. Hell is the reward of having your own way forever but Tim I don't get it how can a loving God send someone to hell how can a rational person reject the loving God's offer of salvation and hope 
You want to throw it on God, I'll throw it back on you. I struggle with a God that would send people to hell. I do too, because he doesn't. He's made the way. I don't struggle with a God that loves us enough to crucify and murder his son, that he becomes the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to him except through the shed blood and atoning work of Jesus. So we struggle, Robin, Mama Kate, we struggle through this. We do. But I wanted to introduce you to my friend Job. His friends, they battle it out for a while. Job, he ends up voicing some concerns to God. And God goes, Job, where were you when I made the mountains, dude? When we, where, where, where were you when I created all this? And then chapter 2, Job replied to the Lord. He said, I know you can do anything you want to do, God. No one can stop you. You ask, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's, it's me. I, I was talking about things I didn't even know about. Things far too wonderful. Read chapters 38 through 42. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions, and you must answer them. Then Job says, okay, God, I had only really heard about you. I thought I knew you. I thought I'd encountered you. I'd only heard about you. But now I've seen you with my own eyes. I've experienced you. I've been bruised and hurt. I take back everything I said, God, I sit here in repentance. I want to know you. Pain afflicts every one of us. Suffering is the universal language, and it's inevitable for all of us to experience pain and heartache. I don't, minimi I don't minimize the pain that any person in this room is going through today. I don't minimize it at all. I hurt with you. I woke up this morning hurting, thinking about my best friend, Jeff, that I grew up with. I'm like, God, you, you allowed him to die on Barb and I's anniversary three-plus years ago. That was my main man. That was the dude I went to school with. I'm the one that drank. I'm the one that drank and drove. Jeff was sober. Jeff was clean. Jeff got sick. Jeff died. I'm still alive. It messes up my skill. Messes up my skills. I'm still alive. You've given me breath. You put me here for a reason. You're not done with me. You give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You save me. You want me to be useful for you. So I was looking through this going, man, will your relationship with God, is it strong enough to help you endure the storms that you're going to go through. Is your resolve that God is still good no matter what type of pain and affliction and hurt comes your way? Job makes one of the craziest statements when he says, though you slay me, I will praise you. Shane and Shane, close your eyes, ponder, contemplate these lyrics. John Piper's got a word in this, and then we're going to come back and spend some time in prayer. I come, God, I come. 
Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. 
when your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out. Don't, don't say it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. A song to the one who's all.